To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes and follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries. Note, this is a true crime story. Character dialogues are direct quotations. In an effort to accurately represent sources, some cited opinions are depictions of a past social sentiment and do not represent the beliefs of the content creator. In addition, this contains violent and dark subject matter. Listener discretion advised. Welcome, dear listener, to L.A. 1909, a true crime podcast uncovering a city's history through a murder mystery. In the season finale, nearly a year after the murder, Anna Polterra makes headlines in connection with a suspicious suicide. The case refuses to go away. We weigh past clues, reveal suspects, piece together conclusions, and take a moment to honor a young girl's life and memory. I'm John E. Marino, and this is the Griffith Park Murder Mystery. Episode 7, Little Girl, Found. Los Angeles, March, 1910. At his seven-acre ranch, on the Los Feliz Road in Ivanhoe, within his stuffy three-room house, the same ranch house where he had uncovered the bloody t-shirt clue almost one year earlier, 37-year-old David Dwyer's body is discovered on his bedroom floor. His wrist, cut in several places, a crooked slice down the right side of his neck and the left of his torso, marred by a fatal gunshot. Sheriff Hamill's office dispatches deputies to the homestead, along with Dr. George Campbell. Their investigation runs into the evening, and though revealing more and more unusual details, when Deputy Sheriff Martin Aguirre and Claude Mathewson return to the station, they report indications point to a clear case of suicide. Despite the fact that deputies and the coroner's physician, Dr. George W. Campbell, sent to investigate the case, report a probable cause of suicide. Investigation has revealed several peculiar circumstances. A number of reporters visited the scene last night, and within a hundred yards of the home of Dwyer, found his hat and his right shoe and stocking beneath a pool of blood. The articles had been overlooked by the deputy sheriffs, and when it was reported that it was a case of possible murder instead of a suicide, other deputy sheriffs were hurried to the scene. 
In the corner of Dwyer's room sits a Winchester carbine, a shotgun in the kitchen. Revolver and carbine cartridges lay scattered in both rooms and spat all over the walls and interior, leading some investigators to consider murder as a serious possibility. Is Dwyer's blood? His body is conducted to the undertaking rooms of Gates and Crane Hollywood for further examination. The Dwyer family refuses to accept the initial ruling. Doubting David could have stabbed and cut himself on his neck and wrist, then waddled home to shoot himself. His father, Harrison, had spoken the night before to condemn the report of suicide. He was a veteran of the Philippine War and brave and had no reason to shoot himself. During the past few days, he appeared happy. And the fact that his hat and shoe were found in such a distant place leads me to believe that murder was committed. Only yesterday, his sister came to Los Angeles, and he had planned to meet her, so I do not think he contemplated ending his life. I will demand an investigation. The aged father was plainly suffering from the shock of his son's death, and the sister of the dead man were reluctant to discuss the case, stating that George Kelly, known as Baldy, and a friend known as A. Duke, should be asked to give their statements as to their whereabouts Saturday night and Sunday morning. Kelly was out of work and at the suggestion of Dwyer's father, went to live with a young Dwyer who had occupied the little house and operated the ranch for 12 years. George Kelly, known as Baldy, had been the one to discover David Dwyer's body when he awoke that morning and headed to the homestead from a nearby campsite he'd been sharing with his friend, Duke. They had been there for a week, and he reported that the night before discovering the body, there had been a light burning in the homestead window. How Dwyer could shoot himself a hundred yards from his house, walk back to the house and blow out the lamp, is a question the deputy sheriffs cannot understand. To aid with the investigation, Kelly comes to Los Angeles, and during an interview, states he had not entered the residence because he feared Dwyer might be in a bad mood and assault him. He claims, uh, I went to Los Angeles last night, and Dwyer accompanied me part of the way to take the car. I became frightened because he seemed to talk irrationally, and that is the reason why I did not return to his home last night. Well, I believe he committed suicide. Well, I don't know the circumstances. When asked, however, Kelly wouldn't say David had been more unruly than usual, and a canvas of the neighborhood would prove Dwyer once drank heavily, but had been newly sober for some time. His father recently visited the ranch and apparently reported he was glad Kelly was able to stay with his son and look after him. The next morning, after a thorough investigation, Sheriff Hamill announced Dwyer's death was certainly a suicide. Six months later. Living near the east end of Griffith Park, Officer Johnson, the park patrolman, hears cries of horror coming from the Polterra Ranch. He shuffles over to investigate and discovers John Polterra, drunk and violent, his wife and son mortified. John is placed under arrest and hauled down to the city jail. 
J.A. Polterra, the father of little Anna Polterra, was arrested last night and locked up in the city jail on suspicion of making threats against the lives of Mrs. Polterra and her 18-year-old son, Edward. The accused, it appears, went to his lonely home near Griffith Park late yesterday afternoon and began abusing Mrs. Polterra. He had been drinking heavily, was in an ugly mood, and frightened her almost into hysterics. Later, when Edward, who is the stepson of Polterra, reached the home, the old man began a tirade against the lad and threatened him while the evening meal was in progress. Edward, reportedly, hoped to calm his father, to no avail. John became more vicious and, according to his son, threatened to shoot the boy and behead his mother. When asked, Mary Polterra corroborates her son's account and states she has been living in fear for some time. According to the story of Mrs. Polterra, her husband has been drinking heavily recently, and on his drunks, he has become more violent than previously. Since the death of little Anna more than a year ago, Mrs. Polterra has become a nervous wreck and frequently has attacks of hysteria when the name of the dead child is mentioned. Edward, agrees his father had been behaving stranger and stranger, and convinces the press John may be suffering from bouts of derangement. At the jail, officers keep a close eye on the prisoner and plan to take him to the receiving hospital for mental evaluations by the police surgeons. If he is declared sane, he will likely be charged for the threats to kill. Some detectives brought up to speed on the present investigation and the case of Anna's murder, start looking at John more closely. Polterra pleads guilty to disturbing peace, slain girl's father sent to jail for 45 days. J.A. Polterra ordered confined in the city prison. He is given five days for drunkenness, the rest for disturbing the peace. John is eventually questioned again about Anna's murder, and despite now being seen in a more ghastly light, he is ultimately released. So, who did it? The LAPD had cleared John Polterra of all suspicion, as they had each and every last person of interest. David Dwyer, was momentarily under suspicion both for finding the bloodied shirt and committing suicide a year after Anna's murder. The theory being, the drunk killed the girl, then offered the bloody evidence to the police, drank more and more, and eventually killed himself, all as a result of a guilty conscience. There was nothing to suggest, however, that this was any more likely than the alternative, that a pitiful suicidal alcoholic just happened to be the one to find the shirt. Moreover, the near absence of press coverage regarding police interest in Dwyer may mean he was never seriously considered a suspect. The favorite, though nebulous, suspect of many 1909 investigators, the Hispanic Tramp, proved to be the only character sought throughout the entirety of the investigation. Officers' passion for this person of interest may be due to the fact that it's really not a person, 
It's a demographic. A teamster provided a tip that a dark-skinned transient had been walking ahead of Anna the day she was abducted. Every investigator could then find, for one reason or another, just about anyone suspicious of child murder, so long as they matched that description, resulting in absurd and egregious misarrests and a narrow-minded investigation, not to mention the increased risk of mob lynching. It is certainly possible, despite other witnesses reporting to see a similar-looking man soon after, apparently too far from the scene to have committed the crime, that that Hispanic male or some Hispanic male was the perpetrator. That would still not strengthen the 1909 investigator's flawed reasoning, however, or right the wrongful arrests, or explain why detectives would continue to believe a transient committed the crime even after the discovery of Anna's lunchbox, which had pointed to someone familiar, perhaps someone from the search party. Or why the dark-skinned man witnessed walking, who Hamill reiterated wore blue overalls and a black sateen shirt, was still the most likely suspect when the recovered blood-stained shirt, the shirt the sheriff insisted the killer wore, was a white workman's shirt with thin black stripes. As far as suspects familiar to Anna, the most conspicuous is her father. John Polterra was one of the first people considered for the crime. After not reporting his daughter's absence to either his family or the police, he would initially be cleared of suspicion, only to be revisited as the potential perp time and time again. His family, despite his admittedly horrific behavior, appear unwavering in their support. Mary always denied John's involvement during the initial investigation, and she and Edward would accept him back after he served his 45 days. Not only was he looked into several times over almost two years and cleared each time but much of his seemingly suspicious behavior could be chalked up to the tragic results of a bereaved parent. The investigation of the last major suspect, Ben Elliott, is the only one the press provides any real depth on, and understandably so. As strange as the other men acted, Ben topped them. He first fled his Glendale camp the evening of Anna's murder in an apparent attempt to get out of Dodge. Not only did he camp all around Griffith Park, he had been in the immediate vicinity of the crime scene, evidenced by the discovery of his black pocketbook and by his own admission. The lifestyle he was living provided him with ample time and access to weapons, which he could have easily used to commit the crime. He was the only known suspect to lie to investigators regarding the case, playing dumb before detectives uncovered the buried news articles at his Redondo camp. He claimed, after ditching the park the night of Anna's murder, he went straight to Redondo, implying he couldn't have staged her lunchbox a few days after her murder. However, 
There are multiple sightings of him all around the LA area for days after. It is true, at least some of these witnesses could have been mistaken. But it's hard imagining the young man witnessed on his way to the aqueduct, hoping to disguise his shirtlessness, apparently scared of something, claiming to be from South Dakota and looking for some work, could be anyone other than Elliot. Officers had decided the bloody shirt believed to be the killer's did not belong to Ben, though he acknowledged tossing and losing an old shirt out near the riverbed. Despite Elliot's inconsistencies, Sheriff Hamill was determined to find him innocent. He makes sure to talk privately with Rosa, the witness from the Aqueduct Road, before he can speak with reporters. Rosa then doesn't positively identify Ben. It seems likely that Hamill is somewhat guarding the young Elliot from the public eye, but it's unclear as to why. Not all clues prove damning to Elliot. His light hair is not a match for the dark brown hairs found in Anna's palm. The Bennett family and their housekeeper corroborated Ben's assertion that the white blood-stained shirt was not his. And for all of his sketchy behavior, it may have just been the result of being the most wanted local burglar in the same neighborhood of a boiling murder investigation. Ben could have sincerely struck the sheriff as innocent, or perhaps Hamill hoped to avoid a trial by press. The sheriff's team ultimately refuses to charge anyone with Anna's murder, and Hamill is immediately haunted by his handling of the investigation. Los Angeles Evening Post, October 14, 1910. Three weeks from next Thursday, the voters of Los Angeles County will elect the men who will administer the county's affairs for the next few years. The Sheriff's Office is the most profitable office in the gifts of the people. The candidates are W.T. Harris, Democrat, and W.A. Hamill, Republican. Sheriff Hamill is, we understand, making his campaign on his record. His record for what? Surely not a catcher of criminals. If it is on that record which he asks re-election, we might ask him, just as one instance, why he did not catch the Polterra murderer. There are scores of men who are just as able to conduct the business of the Sheriff's Office, and other scores who can beat him as a criminal catcher. We believe Mr. Harris is one of these men, and we are for him for the office. Despite this sentiment and his inability to name Anna's assailant, Hamill won his re-election, owing, perhaps, to an adage put best by Benjamin Franklin. It is better 100 guilty persons should escape than that one innocent person should suffer. So who did it? No one knows. No one knows. And at this point, who could it help? Poor judgment and faulty science still held the truth from Anna's family. The guilty still roamed free. A nine-year-old girl is still buried in Rosedale. So then, 
why. To this, the words etched onto Anna's memorandum book, one of the few remaining insights into a girl who lived so short, so long ago, insist on answering. Just two words. The memory. Welcome back to KGFJ, the original 24-hour station. Tonight's news from January 29, 1930. L.A. Park murder of girl in 1909, nearly like Hickman case. Today, the Evening Express presents herewith the ninth of a series of true stories of Los Angeles mystery murders. These stories, some of you will find amazing, some startling, some fascinating, but all absolutely true. In January of 1930, Anna Polterra's murder is revisited on the front page of the Los Angeles Evening Express. Her case is compared to the 1927 ransom murder of Marion Parker. On page two, accompanying the article, is a five-panel comic strip highlighting key moments in the investigation. It ends with renewed pleas for tips and conjecture. Though the brass admit, there is little hope that any living person could shed light on the case. They invite you to write your theory of who killed Anna Polterra and mail your letter care of the Evening Express. Just over a month after the article is published, in March 1930, John Polterra dies of sickness. A card of thanks, printed in the paper, reads, I wish to thank my friends for their sympathy during the illness and death of Mr. Polterra, Mrs. John A. Polterra. John is buried at Forest Lawn Cemetery, eight miles from his daughter in Rosedale with only a simple inscription on his marker, John A. Polterra, 1845-1930. Mary would live to the age of 89, staying with her son Edward and his wife and son in East Hollywood. Edward, eventually moving his family out to the valley, would live there into his early 90s, passing away in May of 1985. His burial site, along with his mother, is in Hollywood Cemetery. The graveside service, provided by Pierce Brothers, the same officiators of his sister's funeral, 76 Mays before. The Angeles Rosedale Cemetery sits just north of the 10 Freeway in the Pico Union District, west of downtown LA. Though simple and elegant, it is a far cry from the acclaimed manicured forest lawn in Hollywood Cemetery. In the late 19th and early 20th century, Rosedale was a common burial ground for Los Angeles prominent families, politicians, and other power brokers. 
It houses the first crematorium west of the Mississippi, the second ever in the nation. Maria Rasputin, daughter of the famed Russian monk, was interred at the cemetery after living her last years off of social security benefits in Silver Lake. Serial killer Louise Pete, the second woman to be executed by the state, along with Golden Age stars Anna Mae Wong and first African-American to win the Academy Award, Hattie McDaniel, all rest in Rosedale. McDaniel's final request, to be buried at the Hollywood Cemetery, had been denied on account of their Jim Crow era, whites-only policy. Rosedale, since its founding in 1884, has accepted every spirit, despite race, class, or creed, and welcomed her among their numbers. An online review of the cemetery reads, The office was closed at 2 p.m. There's no signage, no directory, no groundsman. They give you a map that only an ant can see. The office at the cemetery is indeed locked. A sign on the door refers visitors to a phone number to inquire about service arrangements. Calling the number will eventually prompt a staff member to emerge from the office with a map of the grounds about 17 inches by 11 inches, subdividing the lawn into hundreds of thousands of souls covering 55 acres of land. Each pixel-sized plot, numbered with a blob. Upon request, an office clerk will research a loved one's name and with a felt pen, direct the visitor to the blob they are looking for. Anna is number 11 in Lawn Section A. Just over the fence from Wilton Avenue, in the southeast corner of the graveyard, beside a thin tree, rests plot number 11. Anna's grave marker is obscured by stains and mold, consuming nearly the top two-thirds of the stone. Her name and epitaph, unknowable to most, to anyone who hasn't spent the time looking carved atop her tomb, making her stone just a little different than those surrounding, is a nestling lamb. After brushing away the growth and grime of the last century, a once hidden image engraved on the stone's face is uncovered. A branch of leaves sprouting from the right, adorned with two small daisies. The memorial once again declares to the city eternal love for a little girl. Anna M. Polterra, September 27, 1899, May 17, 1909. Sleep, darling, sleep, and take thy rest. Lyrics from a German dirge are inscribed on the base. Schlaf wohl in Frieden, auf Wiedersehen Heineden. Roughly, sleep well in peace. Goodbye for now. I lay my hand on the stone lamb and leave flowers by the grave. Flowers for Edward and Mary and John. For Anna, nine yellow 
Marguerites. Follow me, he said. Weep not for the maid, in my palace deep, like a lies, asleep. The little girl found. Thank you for listening to LA 1909, the Griffith Park murder mystery, a grassroots mystery podcast by John E. Marino. To help improve the quality of future episodes, support the podcast by following the link in the show notes. You can check out photographs and images of the characters, settings, and events on our Instagram page at Los Angeles Mysteries. And be sure to stay subscribed for an all-new season of new Los Angeles Mysteries coming soon. LA 1909 is an independent podcast written, directed, performed, and produced by John E. Marino. Music, courtesy of Project Gutenberg Audio. Piano rolls by Scott Joplin and Claude Debussy. Other music performed by John E. Marino. It also helps to comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you are listening. Thank you for listening to LA 1909, 